Well, good morning, Soul City. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a joy to be with you. It's uh, especially a joy because I feel like I've been able to journey with, uh, with Jeannie and with Jarrett over many, many years, uh, even beginning when Soul City was just an embryo of a dream that God was planning within them. And uh, to get to follow you so well, nobody communicates what's going on at Soul City or any church that I know of better than those two. I get constant updates telling me what God's doing here. And so I get to pray for you often and think of you often. I uh, have been on a long trip. I have been out of the country in Rwanda and in two weeks in Israel leading some groups from my church, Ecclesia, on a really unique pilgrimage where we get to see holy sites, but we also visit vineyards because Jesus turned water into wine and I want to taste it. And... um, (laughs) And great culinary experiences. And so we've, we've, uh, I literally flew in from Israel last night into Newark and then straight here. I'm super jet lagged. I'm going to say crazy stuff um, <laughs> and blame it on my jet lag and my ambience. So um, I, I'm especially glad to be here because Soul City is the kind of church like the church I pastor, Ecclesia, uh, that believes that uh, what God is up to here is not just a spiritual thing for spiritual people in the spiritual parts of their lives but that God created the whole world and that everything that we have and everything that we do belongs to God, that God made all of it. And so um, how you live out your life and your finances and how you treat your neighbor and your coworkers, that it's all worship to God. We're reminded in John chapter one, I was privileged uh, to lead for 10 years a Bible translation called The Voice. If you pick it up, I think it'll transform the way you read the Bible and the most poetic uh, passage, I think, in the Gospels is found in John chapter 1. It's the creation account that John offers. And in the voice, we translate it this way. Before time itself was measured, the voice, the logos, the living word was speaking. The voice was and is God. And this celestial word remained ever present with the creator. His speech shaped the entire cosmos. Immersed in the practice of creating, all things that exist were birthed in him and his breath filled all things with a living, breathing light. A light that thrives in the depths of darkness, blazing through murky bottoms. It cannot and will not be quenched. Soul City, you are that light. God has made us to be that light. And yet, if you're like me, sometimes it feels like, though our light has not been quenched or put out, that it's shaded or it's a bit hidden. And my guess is that if a lot of you are, are like me, um, the circumstances of your life can often begin to define you in ways that maybe they shouldn't. We're all sons and daughters of God, but the truth is if I told you even this summer how my life's been going, depending on um, how close we are or how honest a mood I'm in, I could give you two radically different versions of my summer, entirely different, both true. Um, So just for context of who I am and what's going on in my life, which would you prefer, the the good story, the good version, or the bad story first? Bad. Bad. We'll start with the bad. Um, So the bad version of my summer is that um, on Memorial Day, we started off the summer in Houston with a lot of rains, and that as I was watching my rockets lose, I stepped out of bed to find a puddle in my bedroom, and, uh, and our house uh, flooded. And so we had to pull out a lot of sheetrock and a lot of carpet. It's cost a lot. It's been a royal pain. We've been out of our house, and I've yet to see it all put back together. 
Um, while we were displaced and staying with friends, I got one of the worst calls I've ever received in my life. I have a younger brother, Brian, who I'm really close to. He married into a great family. Uh, his father-in-law is a pastor, has served churches really faithfully for many, many years. And unbeknownst to me, he had uh, taken a leave of absence from his church. He was struggling with deep depression. And um, I got a middle-of-the-night phone call to hear that this pastor who had loved and served God for so long had taken his own life. And, um, and my nieces and nephews are six of his grandkids, and they're remarkable. They're just, the oldest just became the valedictorian of her high school. She's off to college, and all the kids are just really struggling. And so as an uncle, my heart is breaking. A few days after that, as we continue to mourn, I, I, uh, I got a phone call that one of my uh, friends, kind of an emerging friend, someone I've been sharing Jesus with, a friend who was a major league baseball player and had a remarkable career and just at the gym, because I get to be a normal guy, not a pastor at the gym, we'd become a friend, and uh, I get to talk to him about Jesus, and he uh, reached out to connect with our church, and um, he, was, he was murdered unexpectedly in ways that just, are just horrific, and, um, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I've taken probably all of it on the chin. I, I can go on, but I'm feeling depressed already, so I won't tell you the rest of it. Maybe I can skip to the good part. Um, the good part is, even though our house flooded, um, my kids are a really great stage in life, and we're all feeling really close, and they're all healthy. Uh, in fact, my youngest, when we were displaced to go stay with friends, when our house flooded, he called me as I was pulling up carpet and left a message and just said, Dad, I don't know if I ever told you that I liked our house, but if I did, forget about it. Um, <laughs> we were staying with friends at Ecclesia that have an amazing house, a pool with a slide and a pool table. And, <laughs> So he left a message and said, Dad, blow it up. We can live here. <laughs> and, uh, and the truth is, like, whether your house floods or not, your kids see it all as an adventure, right? And, uh, and because we were displaced, and I inherited this thing from my dad. When you're a pastor, uh, you know, we don't get into this for the bucks. There's not a lot of them in it. Uh, and so growing up in a pastor's home, my dad and grandfather, both pastors, um, our vacations were... Um, uh, challenged um, in many ways, in part because we didn't have the money. And then when we would take a really big vacation, say the biggest one we took to Arkansas, um, <laughs> whenever dad would spend money, he would, you know, he was spending money he didn't have, so it stressed him out. So it'd be like, have fun now. <laughs> and it's not really conducive to having fun. And, um, and I've inherited a little bit of this, so we struggle in my family to vacation well. Uh, so often I just take my kids with me when we sp I speak someplace, but really doing a good vacation we've never been good at. And so we have friends at Ecclesia who said, you're already homeless. We just bought a house in a place I'd never been to Lake, in Lake Tahoe. And they said, come with us. And, um, and they said, we'll pay for everything. And you won't believe how good food tastes when it's free. It's awesome. <laughs> it was it was amazing. It was, we had so much fun. And so we got a full family vacation in Lake Tahoe. As I came back, I uh, was taking my daughter. She's going to be a senior in high school this year. We're trying to decide on colleges. And she wanted to visit some colleges in New England. And when I shared with uh, some friends in the church uh, who are, are part of the President Bush's family, uh, President Bush's son and grandson and their families come uh, to our church. And um, President Bush and Barbara recently came and visited Ecclesia, so they just all of a sudden walked in one week. It'll really cause you to reevaluate your sermon. Um, 
And uh, so they sat down and I prayed. And, uh, and surprisingly, even despite whether or not they thought the sermon was good or not, they invited me to come visit them in Kenny Bunkport, Maine at their home. Uh, while I was in New England. So I got to take my oldest daughter um, with me. Um, in fact, I may have a photo of her with uh, President Bush and Barbara. It may pop up if you see it. Um, on the 4th of July, we got to spend the 4th of July at their home, uh, a large part of it literally in this next one in their living room, just uh, sitting and talking. And Barbara Bush just was blown away by my dear, sweet daughter. And uh, we then had fireworks on 4th of July, and I'm kidding you not, we went out on President Bush's boat and watched fireworks from the water. It was unbelievable. Um, since then, I've been able to spend time in Rwanda where Ecclesia is drilling a lot of water wells, and we get to uh, lead initiatives of reconciliation after the genocide, and the church is being a light. Then I got to take two groups to Israel, and my daughter Hannah was on this last group, so I just left Israel with her yesterday, and uh, we got to go out on the Sea of Galilee on this beautiful boat, and uh, while we were out on this boat, I decided to just take a chance and see if I could walk on water. Um, <laughs> There's an, yeah, it, and it worked for like a split second. I was on the water. And, uh, and we swam together in the Sea of Galilee. And the next day, I was able to uh, take her to the Jordan River and to baptize her in the spot that Jesus was baptized Amen. by John the Baptist. And I, and I wept like a baby. <laughs> So I can tell you, I got, I got both versions of my summer, and they're both true. One's really beautiful, the other's really painful. My, my guess is that most of you are in similar places. Mine feels really extreme this summer, but most of life, uh, there's a couple ways to look at it. And my big fear is that for many of us, how we see our lives is very much framed by the things that happen to us, not by what God is doing within us. And as I was in Israel, one of the most compelling things to see and the reminder for me of one of the ways I want to be a different person is that our Hebrew and Jewish brothers and sisters, they live in some rhythms that no matter what's happening in the world, they keep going. They persist. On Friday night, who knows what happens on Friday night in Israel and Jewish families, right? The Shabbat begins. And literally, as the Shabbat begins in Israel, you see cars parked and people don't get into them anymore and they start to walk and they make their way to the Western Wall and they pray and they dance and they sing and they go home and they don't work. They, they put away their phones. Can you believe that? For an entire day. They don't touch electronics. They won't flip a light switch. And they disconnect so that they can rest and be with family and worship God. Now, there's parts of it when I hear about it, it sounds like a lot of rules. You can't touch this, you can't do that. And Soul City's a lot like my church, Ecclesia. We're not really into rules. But I tell you, when you get with people who are stopping everything to be with God and singing and praying with their family, disconnecting from electronics, you realize we're missing something. They live in this rhythm that's constantly calling them back to a deeper relationship with God. And so today, Soul City, I want to just offer to you some rhythms of life, some ways to live so that whether there are good things happening in your life or not good things, if you will live in these rhythms, I want to tell you, I think these rhythms reflect the good life and the beautiful life that God has made us for. There are six of them, and I'm going to try to just call you into a practical way into each of them. As we go through these, as you take notes, this is what I'd love for you to do. 
These are the six. To be real, to be kind, to seek beauty, to be hospitable, to seek God, and to serve others. Now, I would love in your notes not just for you to write down what those are, but I'm praying that as we open the scriptures together, God's going to speak to you specifically about ways that you can make these rhythms a part of your life. And it'll change you, I believe. The first one's really important. That we would be a people who are real and honest with each other. That we confess and acknowledge our weaknesses. We confess our sins to one another. I want to tell you, Soul City, if you're living in a place that you have not regularly been in the pattern of acknowledging your failures, your weakness, and confessing your sins to brothers and sisters, you're living a bit of a lie. That something happens when we're real and honest with one another and we bring down our guard. I grew up in the kind of church that really portrayed this image that the very best Christians appear to be perfect, often pretty plastic, and they seem to have their lives beautifully put together. I've come to the realization after living in the church and pastoring and leading people for a long time that the people that really are closest to God are much more of a holy mess. You know what I'm talking about? They, they have this sense that there's no doubt God's at work in their lives, but things are never perfect. And in fact, they invite you into the imperfection so that you can see the redemption that's taking place in their lives yeah. as opposed to hide the darkness. Right? And so Soul City... You're the kind of church that you can invite people in and no one has to fake it. As soon as you start to fake it, none of us make it anywhere. We don't make any progress. But if you come in and you be who you are, you acknowledge, this, this is where I'm broken. If before communion each week, you take the time to be with people who love you and just say, can I just tell you how I failed this week? Years ago, I was speaking at an event, and one of the musicians, the guy leading worship, asked me to just go eat with him. And so I often get to meet a lot of people. I went, and we went to a Mexican place and got a big burrito. And he said words to me I'll never forget. He said, Pastor Chris, you know, I feel like I've come so close to God. I'm reading the Bible. I'm just so near to Jesus now that I don't really sin anymore. Um, <laughs> he said, I, I just can't remember the last time I sinned. And now I'd been watching this guy all day, and I kind of thought he was a jerk already. Um, <laughs> and the reality for me is there's never a time that I'm more aware of my sin than when I'm sitting over a massive burrito I'm about to eat. <laughs> I, it has cheese in it, and I still put cheese on top of it. That's, that's the kind of Christian I am. And, and I, I began to describe to him that I think it's actually the opposite that the closer you get to God, it's not really that you sin more, but you're more constantly aware of your sin. You're more constantly aware that you don't deserve God's grace. You haven't earned any of this. And that you're deeply broken. And if you're like me, even when I do the right thing, which is not always at all, but when, when I do the right thing, sometimes I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. Anybody else like me? And I'm doing what technically is right, but my heart's not right, and I know it. The closer I get to God, the more I see my motives. Soul City, for you to be a thriving church as you are, for you to lead more people into a real and honest relationship with Jesus, it takes real honest people who understand that their weakness and their sin and their failure is not a part of what they want to hide from their Christian community. It's what they want to invite people into. At 16, I took one of the most unusual jobs any 16-year-old could get. I had a, 
uh, a friend who was a recovering alcoholic and a diabetic. And as he was going to AA meetings, he started uh, recording the AA meetings because he felt like he needed to be at a meeting all the time. And back in the 80s, they had these plastic things um, you could record on. They were called cassettes. Many of you have never heard of them. Um, they're like an iPod, but not. And, um, and then we would duplicate these cassettes, and then other people would get them. And so my job at 16 was to go to AA meetings and record them. And for the first time in my life, I encountered the most honest people I'd ever met. People who just got up and said, my name is. And then they would begin to say, this is how I failed this week. I fell in love with those people. And I dreamed one day that I could be a part of a church that would live life in that kind of openness and honesty. At Ecclesia, we, um, we invite people in small groups to share their life story with the people they're going to be in small groups with. Have any of you ever had the opportunity to do something like this at Soul City with people that you know and love? Good, a number of you. And, and what happens when, you get to sh- when you're a pastor of a church and people are doing that, people would regularly call me and they'd say, Pastor Chris, I think it's probably the right thing to do if I share like the PG version of my story. Um, and what I found was that every one of us had these deep-seated fears that if we told the whole story, we'd get to places of darkness and our failure And everyone seemed to believe that when they got to these places and they acknowledged who they are and what they'd done, that the people in that small group would just be so fed up with them that they would literally, they had visions of people just flipping their chairs over and running out in disgust. These fears are real. I've been to more than 100 of these. And you know what's happened 100% of the time? When people get to the places of darkness and failure in their stories, 100% of the time, the chairs in the circle where they're speaking, they start moving in. Every person starts pulling their chair closer so that physically with their body they're saying, I'm not leaving you, I love you. And in fact, I'm kind of strangely relieved to find out how messed up you are. Because <laughs> right? I'm messed up too and I thought I was the only one. In fact, you're more messed up than, than me. <laughs> and that gives me great hope. Right? And it's in those places of authenticity God begins to move. Soul City, don't fake it. Be real. When's the last time that you acknowledged your sin and your failures to a brother or sister? James tells us to confess our sins to whom? To one another. Have you done that this week? This month? This year? If you haven't, It's time to make it a rhythm and a part of your life. So the first, to be real. The second, to be kind. So City, you know this in your life, but when the kindness and the love of Jesus pours out of our lives, it has the power to radically change things for people. I was 16 years old when uh, I think I really began to grasp the love of God for the first time time in a tangible way. Uh, I grew up in the home of a pastor. And my, uh, my grandfather, uh, my papa, he's on the, my mom's side. Um, he's a Baptist pastor. He's the kind of old school revivalist Baptist pastor. If he was here today, he would turn up the heat, preach on hell, invite all of you to come forward <laughs> just to make sure. And you would. And it's, uh, it could be when I was a kid, a little intimidating. He was a big figure. 
And I went to live with him for a summer because I got a, a job managing a pool close to his house. I was 16, and it was a good job. I'd stand with him. And for some reason, as I was getting up to go to work, the, the car I had recently bought uh, for all of $200 uh, wouldn't start that day. I don't know why. And... Um, <laughs> My grandfather had never had a, a new car, but he'd recently bought one. It was an Oldsmobile 98. It was a long, big, nice one. And he said, you can drive it. I drove him to work. I dropped him off. I drove it to work. Everything went great. I drove home from work. I still don't know to this day exactly what happened, but somehow I brought the car and the house together as I was pulling it in. <laughs> and I caught this faucet on the side of the house and water spraying everywhere and car's pretty jacked up, and, uh, and I was scared. <laughs> I was really scared. I called my grandfather and just said, Pop, <clears throat> if you could come home, and if you know maybe a plumber you could bring with you, um, that'd be great. And I was just, I remember standing over the car, water spraying. He pulls up, and he's walking towards me, and my hand's shaking so fast I can't stop it. Anybody remember what that feels like when you're that scared? I'm just bracing for him to give it to me. I mean, I deserved it. And I feel his big paw on the back of my neck. And he said these words that changed me forever. He said, son, don't worry. It's just a thing. It's just a thing. Technically, it was two things. It was the car and the house. <laughs> I had managed to damage two of the most valuable possessions he owned in one instant. And yet he said to me really clearly on that day, I love you more than things. I love you more than the car. I love you more than the house. And today I stand here really grateful that that day happened in my life because it changed me. I believe I've planted churches and led Bible translations and been able to serve the Lord in ways that could have resulted in massive failure because I experienced the love in my family that reflected the unconditional love of the Heavenly Father. Soul City, you have the chance to extend that kind of love and kindness to people around you, and it can change them. I want you to know a few things, though. That kind of kindness rarely happens by accident. We pray, we seek God, we say, Lord, to whom may I be kind? I want to invite you in your daily prayer to just ask, God, who would you like me to reach out and be a blessing to today? It'll change your life and theirs. Proverbs says, there is something so beautiful about the right word spoken at the right time. You have those opportunities. So live into it. Make it a rhythm. Be real. Be kind. Seek beauty. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul reminds us of this beautiful truth. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, fill your minds with beauty and truth. Meditate on whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever is virtuous and praiseworthy. Keep to the script whatever you learned and received and heard and saw in me, do it, and the God of peace will walk with you. Soul City, one of my profound fears for you and for me is that we're a people obsessed with many of our problems. We worry, we, we doubt, we struggle. And we focus on the things that are going wrong in our life. And there are these moments of beauty happening all around us. And we allow them just to sweep by. Yeah. We miss them. Maybe experience them just for a glimpse. But rarely do we stop and just meditate on them. Yeah. 
If you have a spouse who loves you and extends kindness to you in ways that are beautiful, will you focus on those things? And I promise your love for that spouse will grow. Is your spouse perfect? No. If you focus on the ways they fail you and they will fail you, you're going to be headed the other direction. If you'll just capture these short moments of beauty... For me right now, and this is what I want to encourage you to do. If you think like you would with your phone, though it may not be something you could actually photograph, but every week if you'd look for just two really beautiful things and just to write them down, or you could photograph them and just say, I'm going to focus on those things. I'm going to meditate on them when I pray. I'm going to celebrate them. For me, the thing that's happening right now in my life that's still so overwhelming that I, I'm still praying through it. Every time I pray, I'm at this unique season where even my boys that sometimes are a little more reserved, especially my 12-year-old, he's at this stage right now when I walk into the room and I'm going to do it tonight. I'm going to go home for the first time in weeks. And whenever I walk into the room, even if I've just been gone a few hours, he jumps to his feet to hug me. He just, now we've been in other seasons where he's playing video games or he's on a phone or he's reading a book and I can't get him to acknowledge that I exist, right? So for me right now, it's just beautiful. And so when I pray, I just thank God, God, thank you that I got a son who loves me, hugs me. Whatever it is that you, if you'll focus on those things, God will bless you. So be real, be kind, seek beauty. And then seek God. This is really important. And if you're going to seek God, well, there are a couple of things you have to do. If, if, you, um, if you were trying to get healthy and fit, um, there's a bunch of things you could do. I've learned after I was on a walk with my kids a couple of years ago, and I was hit by a car and broke my hip, and it's been a long, painful journey. Um, and after that, there are things I, don't, I can't do as well. I, I can't take these spend classes I used to take. So I have to do other things, right? If you, if you want to get healthy, you've got a lot of options. You can swim, you can jog, you can get on the elliptical, the treadmill. You can be like me and be the guy in the yoga class people laugh at. You can, whatever you want to do, there are lots of options of ways you can get healthy. If you want to grow in your relationship with God, you have to read the scriptures and take time daily to pray. There's no way around it. So if you're saying, I want to know God well, but you're not reading the scriptures and you're not taking time to pray, you need to know you won't be growing in your relationship with God. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do, to make a rhythm in your life, daily reading and daily prayer. Just set aside time. It could be a small amount of time, three minutes, six minutes, but start somewhere. And this is what I want you to do, to read the Bible well and read it often. Let me give you just a thumbnail sketch of what I think it means to read the Bible well and read it often. First is that when you're reading it, you're not reading it like many of us grew up reading it maybe in Sunday school where you're looking for God facts, right? God facts are okay, but they're typically not helpful. In fact, if you find yourself reading the Bible and you're like, oh, I really need to know that because that's going to be helpful in that argument I'm going to get theologically with somebody later, right? Um, if you're that person, nobody likes you. Um, <laughs> your mother doesn't like you. She's currently praying you won't come home for Christmas. Um, if you fight over the Bible, right, you just annoy everyone. If you read the Bible, it will not lead you. Like, I won't be reading it, and it will point towards your wife's sin. Some of you, you know what it's like, though. I was just reading the Bible, and I thought about you. <laughs> it's not how you read the Bible. When you read the Bible well, it points to your sin, to your brokenness. It leads you to repentance. So you read it humbly, 
and then you read it with a context for what it really is. The Bible's not a set of facts, and it's not even uh, just history. It's our history. It's our story. So when you read it, you're actually learning who you are. The best way I can describe it to you uh, is through a story in my family. Years ago, I was doing a book with my dad and my grandfather, again, both pastors. And my dad was raised by his grandparents. Um, His dad died in the Korean War, and uh, he was raised by his pappy and granny. My pappy... uh, he was raised him in Houston. He was a one-armed truck driver. I don't know if you've ever met a one-armed truck driver, but the world should have more of them. My, uh, at four years old, the most impressive thing you could be, right, was my pappy just uh, with one arm, he drove a huge dump truck with a stick right in the middle of it before power steering. His one arm was massive. And, um, and I remember just being on the porch, sitting on his lap, and I'd just flap his stub around and play with it. And, you know, I'm a little kid. And I, I remember, like, waiting till I had the words to finally say the big question, like, Pappy, where's your arm? You know? <laughs> Everybody else has two. It was just... And I remember as a kid, I finally asked him, and he didn't answer me. And I learned it was a story that our family didn't talk about. So finally, as an adult, uh, my dad's aunt told us the story, that my Pappy was... Uh, in a bar close to where I live in Houston. And he saw a man mistreating a woman in the bar and he confronted the man and he got in a fight with this man. My pappy beat the guy up pretty good. He thought the fight was over and went on to do whatever he was doing, play darts and get a drink. This guy was beat up, but he went out to his car and he came back in with a gun and he shot my pappy's arm off, um, which was not what we expected. I think I was thinking like a train accident or something, you know? (laughs) But my pappy, with his good arm, he picks this guy up, throws him against a brick wall, and it kills him. Now, he never went to jail. It was considered self-defense. But I think he was ashamed of what he'd done. And the reality is what happened on that day is my pappy really died emotionally and spiritually. He, He never spoke of anything significant or emotional from that day on. He drove his dump truck. He did his job. He sat on the porch. Now, What took me too long to understand was that my pappy was the primary male role model for my dad. My dad was the primary male role model for me. And this story was the very reason, actually, that when I heard this story, it was so traumatic or dramatic to me, I didn't go home and instantly tell my wife. That, you know, because it changed my pappy, which changed my dad, which changed me. Does that make sense to everybody? This is my story. At first, I thought it was just a story, but it took me long enough to realize this was actually my story. I could see myself in it. When you read the Bible well, you're not just reading about Adam and Eve. You're reading about our grandparents in faith, and you can learn who you are and who you're made to be. So when you read the Bible well, you read it often. It will tell you who you are. So be real, be kind, seek beauty, seek God. The only way to do that is to read and pray. And then two more. One is to be hospitable. We have a saying at Ecclesia that it's impossible to hate anyone with whom you eat great food. It's just impossible. Can't do it. I've been experiencing it on this trip in Israel the last few weeks. We brought together people that have never eaten before, Palestinian Christians and Orthodox Jews. We were led by a group of, uh, we call them the chefs for peace, 
And we had a big day with two Muslim, two Christian, and two Jewish chefs. It was beautiful. And over great food, everybody were, were, became deep and profound friends. Soul City, you're the kind of church that's made to open your tables to others. And over those places, you can bridge great divides. If you'll just sit and eat and feast together. We live in a world that is still deeply broken. Our divisions are not the same as those in Israel and Palestine, but they're real. And this summer has reminded us that the problems and the divisions of race in this country are real. And I just want to tell you, I know Jeannie and Jarrett would agree with me. As a pastor, I want to say to you really clearly, if you're white and you're like me and you just think, I don't think this is that big of a problem, I want to say to you as someone who pastors many people of color, the problem is much worse than you imagine. It's much worse. And so I want to invite you to do what the body of Christ does. We're a part of the solution. And so if you see someone posting something online, if someone says something on Facebook, and right now there seems to be great division, some people that trust police, some people that don't trust police, I want to encourage you, do not respond on Facebook. Invite someone over for a meal. Make them a meal. And ask for their insight and their story. These problems... We, we have to go back. C.S. Lewis talks about, we often have to go back before we can go forward. <laughs> that that's how you make real progress. Just to give you some context, I, w- I want to offer to you a story in my life and my grandfather that will give you some sense of why these divisions are still significant. Uh, 25 years ago, I was in college, and my grandfather was retiring. As a pastor, he wasn't retiring with a big nest egg. In fact, he had $70,000 when he was ready to retire. Now, if you've ever been ready to retire. You can't do much on $70,000, but that's what he had. And he had a little home that he'd bought for his mom. And he decided to put that money into renovating that home so they could live without a mortgage. And uh, he hired one of the guys in his church. He'd known for a long time, a deacon who's a contractor. And the deacon said, I can renovate the whole thing. And it basically will cost you that 70 grand. And he told my grandfather, I just, it'll be easier if you can just go ahead and write me a check now. And you can imagine, this guy, he just took the money. He tore the place up. And my grandfather's the kind of Christian that, like, super believes the Bible. So he said, you can't sue Christians. And so um, he wouldn't. So I was like, can we threaten them and punch them? And he was like, no, we can't, we can't do that either. And so what happened is my grandfather took out a large loan at a bad interest rate to hire somebody else to do that work. And he really, he was further in the hole right off the bat. And so I was about 27 when I became one of the few family members that started to support them every month. Just, and I wasn't making much money. I was a church planner. But um, my grandfather's gone to be with the Lord. We still support my grandmother. And, um, and as I was taking my daughter a few weeks ago on college tours and trying to evaluate my capacity to help her, right, a little bit of animosity started to build up towards this guy, right? Because the reality is the theft against my grandfather was still hurting me and it was hurting my daughter already because I'm not gonna have the capacity to help her in the same way. So follow me, 25 years ago, an injustice occurred, but it still matters to me and my daughter today. Does that make sense? So imagine with me, if there were lynchings in Chicago 75 years ago, a much more significant injustice, do you think those wounds still hurt? You think there's still pain? It's still there. And so 
Soul City, we're the people that are made to help bridge and heal those divides. They won't be healed if we pretend that they don't exist. They exist. Can they be healed? Absolutely. Can we regain trust? Absolutely. Is the kingdom of heaven coming, a place where everyone has enough, where everyone's treated with dignity and respect, where people of color and people that are not of color sit and feast and worship in the same place? Absolutely, we're getting a taste of it today. The kingdom of heaven is here and it's coming, but it takes God's people being God's people. So be hospitable. And then the last one as we close and take communion is to orient your life around a service to others. The big lie in our culture is that life is about us and that the way to be happy is to take care of what you want, plan for your retirement, take care of yourself, get the house you want. And then once you do all that, then you can kind of turn towards others. I just want to tell you, it doesn't work that way. I got too many friends. I pastored too many people. In fact, I got a friend here in Chicago that would tell you he, he's saving and saving and, you know, he's professionally he's done really well he finally built this massive 8,000 square foot house that he thought was going to make him so happy and about two weeks in it just this house won't make me happy and after he began to downsize he did things like uh signing up to be a big brother with big brothers big sisters and he began to reorient his life not around what he thought he wanted but really serving others he found more happiness than he'd ever dreamed of soul city we're a people made to serve others your church is good at it you do it well. You get out in the neighborhood and you get to sponsor a, a team that actually wins a championship. That's huge in Chicago. That doesn't happen. Right? If, if you're a Cubs fan, hold on to that championship. It's the only one you'll ever experience. Right? Cheer for that team, for God's sake. I tease Cubs fans, and uh, I would apologize, but I won't. I don't think you're really... I don't think you're really fans. I think you're a part of a cult, actually. And so you have some kind of weird goat rituals. And so I don't know if you can be a Cubs fan and a Christian. Pray it through and see where it got. You can't serve two masters, people. That's what Jesus said. So I could rant like this for an hour, and it's time for communion. I love you, Cubs fans. Jesus loves you more than I do, but I love you. We're, uh, we're going to celebrate communion today. And this is what I want you to know. Churches across the globe right now are celebrating communion. Where I came from in Israel, Palestinian Christians are gathering in places that they are not really free. They don't have a passport that allows them to leave their country. In fact, many of them can't even leave their city or their area. They're celebrating communion. They're believing in a day that's coming in the kingdom of God in Haiti, and in Rwanda, and in Latin America, and in my home church in Houston, we're breaking the bread and coming to the table. So will you pray with me, and then we're going to join together in a time of celebration. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you came from heaven to earth to walk amongst us, to teach us, and to bring a redemption that could only come through your death and resurrection. And so we ask today, God, that as we come to this table, that we could be the people of hope, that you'd lead us into these rhythms, that we would be a people that are real and authentic with each other, that we'd seek beauty, that we'd seek God, that we'd be hospitable, and that we'd reorient our lives to serve others and to serve them well. We pray this prayer together as we ask you to bless this 
bread and this cup. And we pray it in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We want to invite you now to celebrate the love of Jesus in a tangible way. Jesus said, I want you to take this and I want you to remember me because he knew we were a forgetful people. And so we have stations at the front and at the back. Right about the middle, you're going to be divided. And those of us towards the front will come forward. Those of you at the back will move backwards. The ushers will point you in the right direction. At Soul City, we take of uh, the Eucharist by intinction. It's just a big fancy word to say, tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. I'm from Texas. We're really good at this. We have chips and salsa. We just dip. (laughs) It's literally the strongest muscle in my body right here. Just take it, you dip it, and then together we're joined in the love of Christ. And so we're going to be led in song and in worship, and we invite you just to come and to be connected with brothers and sisters. If you need to confess sin, if you need to seek God's forgiveness, if you have anything else that God's doing in your life, you need to pray, we invite you to do that in this time. So come as the ushers release you.